The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest news from Ukraine and Europe, and we analyse the view of Putin's invasion from Central Asia with our correspondent James Kilmer, who's on the ground in Nur Sultan, the capital of Kazakhstan. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 20th of June, day 117. And today I'm joined by Assistant Foreign Editor Katie O'Neill, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, and Telegraph Correspondent James Kilner, who's joining us from Kazakhstan. I started by asking Katie and Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Hello, David. Hello, everyone. Um, A lot of action happening today, actually, um, in Ukraine and on the uh, war front. There's been two attacks that are quite notable. One of them recorded on Snake Island, that uh, infamous uh, island that we've all come to know so well, where a lot of Russian kit and military might is stationed. There were explosions recorded there this morning, which uh, uh, potentially indicates that some sort of Ukrainian counterattack happened there. Similarly, there is a oil rig off the coast of Crimea, which is obviously that annexed region of Ukraine, uh, which is operated by Russians. This oil rig is and military, or sorry, pardon me, missiles have struck that rig today. The Russians are saying that no one was killed, but that there were a number of injuries amongst the workers that were on that rig. So there is a sort of growing sense that the Ukrainians are um, attacking and counter-attacking in new territory. Similar scenes over the weekend in Kurzan, that Russian-occupied city in Ukraine, a prison boss, a local prison boss, uh, was subject to a assassination attempt by the Ukrainians. A, uh, I, uh, an explosion went off near his uh, car over the weekend. He survived. He is recovering from his injuries. Um, but again, you know, a sense of a growing. Uh, resistance among Ukrainians uh, and and them sort of shifting focus to areas that are occupied by uh, the Russians. Thanks, Katie. Francis, do you want to come in on uh, on Snake Island? I know you had some thoughts on it. Yes, thank you, David. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting seeing the developments around Snake Island today, um, not least because I was speaking to a listener of this podcast um, about it just last week, um, who's been following the situation on Snake Island very closely. And he made a, a very good point, which is that obviously we're familiar with Snake Island because of the sinking of the Muskva. Um, and obviously in those uh, in the in the beginning of the war, it was Ukrainian held um, territory. And um, there was the famous message of defiance to the uh, Russian invaders from the Ukrainians who were stationed there. They were initially believed killed, but um, we now know that they actually uh, survived. And I say its military significance is that um, with the sinking of the Moskva, two things happened in the theatre there. Uh, effectively, there were some significant changes in how the Black Sea fleet uh, was training for the war with the war um, and, and sort of more of an intense workup in, around Crimea. And essentially, the base of operations for this was Snake Island. 
And so now we are seeing what we expect to be a attempt by the Ukrainian high command to effectively destroy uh, Snake Island as a strategic base. Um, it's significant because it's been able to be used for air attacks, we believe, um, not only air, but also surface assets as well. And so um, it's been a significant thorn in the Ukrainian side now, uh, ever since um, the losing of the island. And I think we are now starting to see a significant counterattack, which will have quite significant military ramifications. Thanks, Francis. Casey, coming back to you, um, what's the away from the south and in the north, Kharkiv and, and the Donbass, what's the latest from that? Uh, so sort of just generally elsewhere, we have Zelensky saying today that he expects the Russians to really up the ante in terms of the their uh, attacks in Ukraine and the sort of level of assaults that they are staging. The reason for this, he says, is because the EU is this week considering whether or not to grant Ukraine access to the bloc. Initially, Russia sort of played down how much it cared that Ukraine, you know, was making this bid to join the European Union, saying that it wasn't a a military or defensive bloc and it made no odds to them whether or not they joined. But the uh, intelligence that um, Zelensky has clearly seen indicates that they're going to up the ante in terms of the attacks that they are mounting this week. Also over the weekend, we had Jens Stoltenberg, the chief of NATO, saying that we are in uh, for a very long war, saying that the world needs to be be prepared for years more of conflict in Ukraine. And that tallies with remarks that uh, Boris Johnson made over the weekend. So, yeah, sort of a a sense of both uh, a, a particularly violent perhaps a week ahead and then you know within the sort of uh, more broader global community warnings that this isn't going to end anytime soon. And Francis just on the EU staying with the EU um, foreign ministers EU foreign ministers are meeting in Luxembourg uh, today to discuss ways to free the millions of tons of grain stuck in Ukraine thanks to the Black Sea port blockade uh, implemented by the Russians. Um, Do you have thoughts on this? Yes, well, we've spoken in the past on the podcast about how significant the grain crisis is from the perspective of many of the European leaders and, of course, global leaders as well. Um, talks of the, the severe ramifications, not only on the cost of living, but also um, in, in, in Africa and other places that are really heavily reliant on, on, on this grain. And um, I've cited in the past a statement by um, the Right Honourable Alex Shelbrook MP, who's the leader of the UK delegation to the NATO Parliamentary Assembly. And I won't read it all again, but when I um, summarised it before, essentially it was him saying that that this was a absolutely central part of the conversations that are taking place within NATO, including consideration of there being a possible joint expeditionary force of naval vessels um, that that could be involved in escorting grain out of Ukraine. Um, But the developments today are significant because... Um, Germany now, we understand, is supporting Poland and Romania in adapting their railways to enable the export of millions of tons of grain stock um, that's in Ukraine and has obviously remains in Ukraine due to the Russian sea blockade. So we're hearing uh, from that the German uh, that that from the German foreign minister and and I will quote from her so the quote the railway tracks need to be modernized we need the right cargo wagons the German government is working on this with many other actors it is clear that in the end we will certainly not be able to get out all grain but if we even just manage to free part of it on various routes then this will help as we are facing this global challenge 
So it's very interesting, I think, that, uh, that, 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 that this is clearly such a significant topic of conversation. And it just reiterates the points that we've made uh, several times before on this podcast. That this is a war, of course, that is not only military in scope, but it is one that is being fought on the food front and uh, the information front and the energy front as well. And, and this, as I say, it speaks to that. And just one more question from me before we bring in James Kilner. Um, just on the energy front, Francis, Germany has decided to restart its uh, coal-powered uh, fires, um, coal power stations. Can you talk a little bit about this? Well, yes. I mean, it's it's quite remarkable, isn't it, that that, that Germany, which uh, f- over several years has has closed down its nuclear power stations and has been opting to uh, obviously purchase considerable uh, Russian oil and gas, but has also been one of the pioneering countries of the sort of net zero agenda, if one were to articulate it as that, within the European Union. And so we're seeing, as you say, an enormous about turn here um, as uh, Germany, is to, Germany is to reopen these mothballed coal power plants to help combat the high gas prices. Um, and, and of course, this has also been, we understand, part of the conversations that have been having between Germany and Britain. Um, listeners may recall when Olaf Scholz came and visited um, Downing Street and met with Boris Johnson, we understand that that was on the agenda there. And there was even talk of Britain providing some support um, in the interim um, whilst uh, Germany was was uh, unmothballing, if that's the word, um, bad English, but you know what I'm saying, um, these these coal power plants. And, and we also understand as well that the German government is intending to pass emergency laws to, to reactivate them. So again, speaking to the sense of urgency here, um, but I think we're broadly seeing now Europe adapting to the severe security threat that Russia, Russia's stranglehold on Europe in regard to energy has had and is having. And but of course, this will take time. And we obviously listened to uh, to Louis last week talking about uh, the sort of shadow fleets that are still operating in an attempt to to find ways around the the embargoes and things like that that are taking place and so this is a very a very complicated picture um but clearly um europe is trying to signal that it is serious but i think you know it's it's such a u-turn that this is going to take months potentially years and and uh and and to katie's point um that this is this would speak to that uh that that, that you cannot reverse radical uh, a radical shift in energy policy overnight thank you very much francis um i'd like to turn to james kilner and invite james uh, to speak with us thank you so much for your time james james you're out in kazakhstan at the moment can you give us just a very quick sense of the stories you've been working on and then what i'd quite like and what i'm sure listeners would find quite useful is just a sort of overview of the history of central asia and russia because i think that will really give us um the right the, the, the right foundations for, for some of the stories you've been working on so I'm wrapping up a three-week trip around Kazakhstan, um, focused on Almaty, the former capital. Um, and then I went up to Uralsk on the border with Russia. And now I'm in Nur-Seltan, the, uh, the current capital. And the focus of this three-week trip was twofold, mainly. It was to follow up on the unrest that really shook Kazakhstan in January. And... Uh, involved Russia, Putin sent down 2,000 paratroopers to help quash that unrest. Uh, Paratroopers that he would later use to try and uh, capture Kiev. Um, So it was to to follow up on that story, and it was also to have a look at 
how the the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, looked from Kazakhstan, a, a neighbouring former Soviet country. Um, so I'm, I'm wrapping that up. Um, and then I also, I, I deputised for Natalia, the Telegraph's Russia correspondent, and I was on duty on Friday when Putin gave a, an important speech at the end of the St. Petersburg Economic Forum, a speech which um, he happened, he, he, it, was, it, was a, it was a major speech, and I'll come on to it in a minute, but uh, the, the president of Kansas was also on the forum with him, so that added a Central Asia angle to, to that. As, as for Russia and Central Asia, very briefly, um, it's, a, it's a region I've covered for 20 years, uh, all of my career, lived here several times uh very fond of the place it's it, 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 it the the uh, former soviet central asia state states there's five of them kazakhstan kyrgyzstan tajikistan uzbekistan and turkmenistan they all um became independent uh, when the soviet union collapsed in 1991 and really their story in the last 30 years has been about uh building up their own national identity or identities rather, solidifying that, getting the ordinary people on side, economic development, resource management, um, kleptocratic regimes, uh, the, the odd bit of violence, etc. And then also very importantly, managing, uh, walk, managing to walk along this sort of international relations tightrope between Russia and China and also the West. And, th and that really has been a huge challenge especially with things like Afghanistan on their doorstep, oil pipelines, this sort of thing. And for Kazakhstan, this is particularly acute because it shares, I think, it's the longest land border in the world with China, with um, Russia. The northern, its northern border with Russia is huge. And uh, along its northern regions, there's a, there's a belt of cities or towns which are roughly, they range between a third populated by ethnic Russians and up to 65% in some cases. So they have this huge um, sort of vulnerability, if, if you want, and this and huge reliance on Russia, which Russian is still very widely spoken in the area and links with Russian business is, is very important and the Russian state and, and government is very important. The Kremlin is hugely important. They're involved in lots of economic unions of Russia, uh, Eurasian Economic Union, for, for example, is a Kremlin-centric sort of economic space, although it was officially set up in Almaty, it's Kremlin-centric. And then there's something called the CSTO, which is a sort of pseudo-military group, which was used to send the uh, Russian soldiers to Kazakhstan in, in January. So, uh, and Kazakhstan and, and other states in Central Asia are part of this. So there's lots of levers that the Kremlin has over Central Asia and Kazakhstan. And when Putin triggered his invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, I think he expected full backing from, in, in, in some ways, his vassal states in, in Central Asia. But they have, they have proved uh, incredibly sort of independent and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan to name uh, the two most prominent examples, they they have both stood up and said that they respect the international, uh, uh, they, they respect the territorial integrity of, of Ukraine. 
So they're not fully behind this war in, in Russia. And that is and has caused them huge headaches, which I was investigating. Could you take us through why exactly they've stood up and said that? Why, why, are, they, why are they not backing Moscow? And what was, the, what was Moscow's reaction to that? The, the line from the Kazakhs is that they do not regard to Donbass, uh, rebel Donbass regions in Ukraine that Kremlin supports as independent states. Um, it's, it's a policy they've had for a long time. Partly, I mean, none of these countries want to encourage any potential splinter group, splinter regions in their own territory. So they have to generally, generally come down quite hard on on sort of separatist tendencies uh, in eastern Ukraine or in Georgia or in you know Moldova with Transnistria, etc. Um, and also, it I think it's very important for these Central Asian states like like Kazakhstan not to drift into the sort of Lukashenko, Belarusia area where they, they really become like a, a little bit of a crazy um, Russian um, sub-state, which is kind of where Belarusia and, and Lukashenko is, unfortunately. And they, they, they have to play the game with backing Kremlin a little bit, but also backing the West a bit and also playing off against China's interests. And that is what they're trying to do um, in this war. And that was what uh, made it so... It was, it was an incredibly dramatic moment on Friday at this, uh, during this big speech in St. Petersburg that, that uh, Putin had just given. He, he gave a 75-minute speech, which was very bombastic. He seemed incredibly invigorated by uh, this military, his military successes in Donbass, uh, he was talking about how um, he was going to propel Russia to the top of a new world order. He was t- talking, uh, telling, telling, you know, fronting up to the US, telling, reminding everyone how arrogant he thought the US was. He was telling the EU that their san- sanctions were a waste of time and it was going to cost them more than it would cost Russia, etc. He rattled off reams and reams of economic data to prove how strong the Russian economy was. And all in this sort of, uh, jam-packed 75 minute speech and then and then he had um, uh, a video message from the Egyptian president and then one from the Chinese president and then he, then him and um, uh, Kasim Jumat Tokayev the Kazakh president who, who'd also previously given a much smaller speech uh, were, were sitting next to each other in, in these armchairs and they had a two hour quite freewheeling question and answer session and it was during this question and answer session that Kasim Dramat Tokayev, the Kazakh president, told Putin to his face that he didn't agree with his um, support for the rebel regions in Donbass, which I've never seen before. I've never seen anyone challenge Putin on stage, live on TV. It was remarkable. Wow. And what was Putin's response? Uh, well, there was, a, um, there was a stunned sort of murmur in the audience because th- th- this was just incredible um and 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 Tokayev owes Putin big time for backing him in January during the unrest in Kazakhstan and sending down the 2000 paratroopers which shored up his power in a power struggle internal power struggle so so Tokayev owes Putin and here and here he was saying that in, under international law Kazakhstan could not and would not recognise the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. 
which the Kremlin uh, ha- says is the one of the core reasons for its uh, invasion. Um, Putin s- sat there, stony faced, uh, you know, sucking in his lips. Didn't 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 say anything immediately. Didn't didn't uh, sort of his his facial expression was just blank as as it often is. Um, and then the 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 moderator kicked in and she sort of pushed the interview, uh, the this Q and A session forward a bit. But twenty minutes later, uh, Putin sort of reminded Tokayev, who is boss, in, in in one of those sort of coded messages that he that he and the Kremlin give them out. He said, uh, all of a sudden, he said to a sort of a fairly innocuous question. Um, the Soviet Union's history is no, the Soviet Union is historic Russia, which was code for. Um, and then and, and then he went on to say, uh, you know, Kazakhstan brotherly, etc. No one would dare mess mess with relations with Kazakhstan, but Ukraine could have had a, we could have had a brotherly relationship with Ukraine, but then they went and did their own thing, went pro west, and we had to invade. So it was it was Kremlin code for. The Soviet Union is ours. We can do what we want in the Soviet Union. Uh, we're happy to be friends with you, Kazakhstan, Tokayev, but you have to do as we tell you. And if you don't, then good luck to you because we invaded Ukraine because they didn't do what we, we told them to do. So it was, it was a big sort of reminder about who who is the top dog. And how did Putin's comments go down in Kazakhstan? Are people, are people there worried about an invasion or do they just think that as you said that was just a, a kind of coded put down to to kind of no people here are generally worried about um an invasion and and it's this big sort of where next guessing game if there is going to be an next where where would it be guessing game that a lot of us are, are playing right now um and i've been I, I this has been like a five-week trip and i've been dotting around the sort of borders of, of russia and sort of Taking taking the pulse, so to speak, and here in Kazakhstan, you know, Lushalmati, which is a long way from the border, southeastern corner, people would tell you straight away, yeah, totally worried about it. Uh, Putin's gone crazy, and he could easily march his armies into northern Kazakhstan and and grab it. And then uh, three and a half hour flight away, in the northwest corner of Kazakhstan, is this town Udalsk, which. Has the has very much the feel of a of a Russian czarist town. It was sort of the southern boundary for some time of the czar's czar's empire, and it has all this imperial Russian architecture, etc. And up there, around about a third of the population are are ethnic Russians. And speaking to people up there, it is even more acute the, the concerns that people have. And w- what I picked up is. A lot of the a lot of the Russians in these places are watching and listening to the Russian propaganda coming out of the Kremlin, and it is hardening uh, opinions. So the the ethnic Russians. This is obviously a generalization, and, it, and it's not hundred century, but it, but it's it's, it's it, it, it is you know a, a long way there. A lot of the Russians are becoming increasingly pro Kremlin or, or pro Russia while the ethnic Kazakhs are becoming increasingly wary of their ethnic Russian neighbours, etc. And I've been talking to some Russian government, uh, some Kazakh government officials here in Seltan, 
and they will privately tell you that they are uh they're you know they're all this is a huge worry on on the record they're a bit more sort of blase about it but off the record they're like yeah this is this is a very very tricky situation of course with the uh the the russian army getting bogged down in um ukraine uh, putin's capacity to strike another str- strike on another front is dented but the kazakh army really would be no match even for a, a weakened russian army um so yeah it's um it, it's alarming to say the least this is absolutely fascinating thanks james um i've just got one more question from me before i'm sure francis um will have some thoughts as well um minerals and energy some some of the really big links between the central asian states as you've said and russia could you give us a sense of the kind of um economic links that that exist you've mentioned oil pipelines you know, how dependent is are the central asian states on russia or, or is it the other way around or, or is that that the wrong way to think of it no no that's a it's, it's a that's a fairly um that's a fairly accurate way to think of it uh well okay let's look at um so 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 Kazakhstan's wealth is is built on oil and gas mainly pumped out of West Kazakhstan and um minerals rare earths metals etc uh, which are mainly found in north and east Kazakhstan um but we can take one, one example there's there's a pipeline called the Caspian uh, Petroleum Consortium CPC which um pumps oil from fields in West Kazakhstan into Russia um, around the north, uh, sort of around the northern edge of the Caspian Sea, and out into and and sort of ends up in a in a in a Russian Black Sea port, Novorossiysk, and um, about in 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 April, and this is a very important pipeline. This is the biggest pipeline, oil pipeline going west out of Kazakhstan. A lot, a lot of the Kazakh energy goes east into China. This is the biggest one, the biggest pipeline going west, um, uh, carrying Kazakh oil. And, and it was considered, when it was completed, um, I, I, I'm not sure when, I think it was the early 2000s or late 1990s, um, it was considered one, one of the sort of biggest uh, international successes, energy sort of consortiums, Russia, the US, there's US companies involved, there's UK companies involved, there's Kazakh companies involved, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it means that Kazakhstan and its oil industry are very vulnerable to what the Kremlin wants to do. And the Kremlin ordered, or someone ordered, Russian authorities ordered it to be closed down at the beginning of April or the end of March. I'm not sure exactly when. Uh, they said there was storm damage and uh, they needed to repair it, et cetera. And so they shut it down for a month. Now, the evidence of storm damage was very thin, and uh, most analysts think that this was actually a warning that the Russians could take out this pipeline at any moment. So, th- I mean, that's just one example of how reliant Kazakhstan is on Russia's on on, on decent ties with Russia to to to, to function properly. Just one more observation f- from me before Francis comes in. Um, from everything you've said, the sort of it seems absolutely exhausting that you have to constantly decode things that, that nothing is ever as it seems. What Putin says might might be a threat; it might not be. There might be the, with the oil pipeline. Is it a? Is it from storm damage? Is it not? Is it seen as a as a as as a threat to the energy industry? What, what, is that? 
what kind of experience does that mean for the people living there that you're constantly never really sure what what actually Russia wants or or, or is saying? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, that's a good observation. Um, I think when uh, I think when 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 you live here and, and you're involved in, in in the system, you're trying to work it out. You get used to playing these coded games and. Uh, that this sort of these sort of statements, which could mean one thing or another thing, and and how to translate them into in, in, into into real actions, they sort of trickle down. So they they also exist at company level in newspapers and in official in official uh, double speak, etc. Um, so I, I mean, you get used to it. It's, all, it's also exhausting for journalists trying to trying to read between the lines all, all the time as well. Um, but we. we we like the people living living here in in Kazakhstan have to just keep trying to work it out. And um, there was some there were some big messages sent out by Putin on on Friday. That was for sure. Well, thank you very much, uh, James Francis. Um, I'm sure you have you've been listening very 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 attentively the last twenty minutes. Do you have any questions for James? <laughs> of course, and that was absolutely fascinating to hear James's testimony of what's what it's like on the ground in 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 these really important territories. That of course we've we've sort of touched on at various different times since the invasion but now we can sort of give the the attention to the, that they deserve and this is my first question is talking about you were talking about the tensions there within Kazakhstan and and how clearly the the leader of, of Kazakhstan is is sending a message to to Putin is not happy about the direction of travel over Ukraine I just wonder how how does I suppose Kazakhstan's defiance compare with some of these other former Soviet states. Do they all share a fairly similar perspective on on the Russian threat, or or, or do some of them actually, you know, are, are there others that perhaps are more sympathetic to Moscow? Uh, yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I, I I would say that each one of these states. You know, from from right across from from the South Caucasus, Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan, and the, uh, the five Central Asian states, they all have their own deal. They all have their own relationships with the Kremlin, and they all have their own complexities. There are major um, Russian army bases, for example, with, with, with a couple of thousand men in in Armenia and Tajikistan, um, and there are. Uh, Russian soldiers running around, uh, or sort of patrolling around, rather uh, Armenia, trying to keep a peace between Armenia and, and, and Azerbaijan around the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and then, and then you have uh, in Kyrgyzstan, which you might see the uh, Central Asia area. In, in Kyrgyzstan, you have um, a leader who came to power in a coup in 2020, who uh, has been very pro-Kremlin since. He took he took over, um, uh, in, including going as far as to be I think the only one to vocally support um, Putin's war in 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 Ukraine, and then you got Georgia uh, back back in the South Caucasus, which was invaded in two thousand eight by Russia, of course, um, but has has and, and used to be incredibly pro West and pro EU, but the 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 governing part of their Georgian dream is bankrolled and backed by a very wealthy guy, the wealthiest guy in, in Georgia, who earned all his money in Russia and actually has pro-Russia leanings and sentiment to the extent where Ukraine has accused Georgia and uh, 
of course they I, I I don't know where 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 this uh, where this story is going to go. They accused Georgia of of helping um, Russia uh, evade sanctions, but I'm, I have to caveat this that the Georgian government has has, has denied it. Um, and and so 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 the, the, there's each state has its own complexities and relationships with uh, with the Kremlin and the, and Kazakhstan. With its huge border, with its uh, large Russian population, has particularly difficult tight roads to walk. I, I only ask this question because you 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 mentioned it as a sort of explicit threat. Um, I, you know, and 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 we were talking, and you mentioned there that you don't think necessarily that it would be particularly easy for. Uh, for Putin to to launch some sort of invasion of these territories, if, as some have feared, this is some sort of broader plan to rebuild the Soviet Union, that you know, the, 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 it would be very challenging given the, the scales of the defeats that he's faced in Ukraine. It seems unlikely, but let's say that he were to attempt to do that. Just um, you, you said that Kazakhstan would fall very easily. How? If there were some sort of extended conflict on on those borders with these these five these five former Soviet states, what would that war look like? Would it be something that would be over? You expect very very quickly, or would it be a situation where, because of geographical reasons, because of issues around morale or good leadership, that this could actually be a similar situation of Ukraine if the worst were to happen? Okay. Um, firstly, it needs to be pointed out the only Central Asian state with a border with Russia is Kazakhstan. All the the other four lie south of Kazakhstan. Um, so, uh, a land invasion would obviously require going through Kazakhstan. Um, we we have to keep this in in, in perspective. Um, that there's no there's no doubt about it that Putin is in very belligerent mood. And he's been reinvigorated, like I said, by his relative military successes in Donbass, which are coming at normal and at an enormous cost. Um, and and his main project, it seems, from from listening to him so much and and watching him, etc., um, is is this sort of reinstatement of the USSR and and the uh, Peter the Great sort of land grab for Russians. Now, this doesn't necessarily. I mean, in in Ukraine, we we've seen him physically take back land or, or capture capture Ukrainian land and and put put Russian flags all over it, and that is a very old school, very old school and very terrible uh, imperialist uh, approach to approach to his sort of um, his grand idea. But he can also exert huge influence and pretty much. Um, Regard these former Soviet states as as his domain, just by pulling and push, pulling levers and pushing pushing the right buttons. So many of the analysts here in Kazakhstan say there's absolutely no need for Putin to risk another invasion in Kazakhstan because he he pretty much can can control the country anyway, up to up to a point. This is. Um, uh, so, so, so that has that context has to be taken. But, but this this point does keep needing to be made as well. The the Kazakh army is uh, small um, and, and not particularly experienced or particularly um, well equipped. 
And they also, it uh, Kansan has no aspirations to join NATO or, or the EU. It's, it's way out, it's too, too far away, etc. And so if there was um, some sort of invasion or, or whatever by by Russian forces, it would get no backup. So it, it would all just be over. Um, and as we've seen in Donbass, Putin likes to use the pretext of defending ethnic Russians' interests to um, trigger mi- military action. And in the, in the northern Kazakhstan, he has, uh, I think it's three and a half million ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan, out of a population of about 16, 16 and a half million. And a lot of those live in, in, in north Kazakhstan. Question from me, James. Actually, my, my final question is: You mentioned the story on Friday about the uh, about Putin and Tokayev at the economic forum. Where where does this story go next? How does Kazakhstan and the other Central Asian states continue to walk the tightrope, as you said, between Russia, uh, the war in Ukraine, China, and the West? It's going to be fascinating to to watch them do it. Um... At the weekend, Ramzan Kadyrov, the Chechen leader, who's a staunch Putin ally, issued one of his many um, video updates to his Telegram channel in which he openly threatens Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan. I'm not sure why he picked on Azerbaijan. Um, I have to dig deeper into it. Um, but Kazakhstan, he basically told them to get into line or, or, or face the consequences coming so quickly after Putin's um, spe- speech on Friday and the uh, the sort of the indignity that Putin would have felt. I mean, I, it, analysts say that Tokayev, the Kazakh president, humiliated him live on TV. There was definitely an element of that. Uh, this was Kadyrov issuing a threat to Kazakhstan um, two days after the Kazakh leader had humiliated or gone against Putin live on TV, so th- that, that's not a good thing from the from the Kazakh perspective. Um, at the, uh, last month as well, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian Foreign Ministry, lobbed more problems Kazakhstan's way when he said that Kazakhstan hosts U.S. bio labs. Uh, which may or may not be producing biological weapons. Now, this is important because the Russians have accused Georgia and Ukraine of hosting biolabs linked to US, which have produced weapons previously. The US and Ukraine and Georgia have all denied this. Uh, They just say they're doing research on coronavirus and other uh, civilian-orientated projects. Um, But the Kremlin keeps talking about this, and the Kremlin has also used this and their propaganda to justify invasion of Ukraine. So uh, it was not good to hear Lavrov start to talk about in the same vein uh, with Kazakhstan. There's also been other uh, Kremlin-linked commentators who have been tough on on Kazakhstan, and and in the Russian media after Tokayev's defiance or sort of defiance or sort of after after Tukai pointed out to Putin that they Kansan did not support his policy in the Donbass, there was definitely some angry uh, commentary in Russian media the next day. I just have one uh, one more question if I may, James, which is about what you were saying about how Russian 
speaking people, ethnic Russians in Kazakhstan and elsewhere have been sort of swept up in some of this Russian propaganda coming out from the Kremlin. I just wanted to just hear your general sort of description really about how information, what information is read in these states. I mean, is it, I imagine, as you say, a lot of it is coming from the Kremlin, but what is their sources to receive that information? Is this sort of mainstream state TV? Is this through back channels? And likewise, with Western media, Western perspectives on what's going on in Ukraine, how does that filter through or does it? Just very interested in, in getting your sense of how the information landscape operates in these places. So I think the uh, a, a lot of the Russian speaking popula- the Russian and Russian speaking uh, population in North Kazakhstan they are watching Russian uh, mainstream TV and watching uh, and reading mainstream Telegram and internet channels. That's just the way that they would pick up their news because of their sort of natural uh, inclination to uh, support Russia and, and the Kremlin and and. They are picking up all these stories about how uh, the tortures and, and massacres in Butcher was a was a was a Western MI6 fake plot. Um, how uh, the Russian speakers in in the Donbass region are being completely marginalised. How Putin, you know, needed to trigger this war, etc. So they're they're just picking up exactly the same stuff that would be read inside uh, Russia which is, is hardcore, constant propaganda, which is justifying the Russian invasion, invasion etc. Um, and I had a I had an interesting in, insight into this um, last night, actually, because Kazakhstan is a neutral country, and so there you get Russians coming here to do business, etc. And in, in, in the bar of the hotel that I was staying, and that I'm currently staying in, um, in central uh, Nusatan, um, or, or Astana, uh, as it was called until 2019, there was a Russian businessman uh, there, and and we chatted. Um, and he was he he was just telling me, you know, completely wrong, and and Putin's completely right, etc. And and he's obviously an intelligent guy from St. Petersburg, uh, got a small business. He'd, he'd come here to, to buy a brand new car because it's, it's cheaper, etc. Um, so there was that very fascinating fascinating uh, insight, which is quite rare. These days, unfortunately, because we, we we can't get into Russia, where I was able to chat for an hour or so over a beer with this Russian businessman and get his insight into the invasion of Ukraine and why NATO's to blame and why MI6 are doing uh, sort of creating these fakes in Butcher, etc. So yeah, no Sultan as as a meeting spot could could get quite interesting because you pick up viewpoints here which which you don't get in the West. Well, thank you very much, James and Francis, for your time. Um, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. And of course, if you've got questions, please do write in. Um, I do believe we're out of time here, though. So, Francis and James, can I ask for your final thoughts? What should our listeners be paying attention to? What should they be thinking of um, going into this week? Um, Francis, would you like to go first? And then we'll give the final thoughts uh, to James. Sure. So I spoke earlier about the military significance of Snake Island, which has obviously become this sort of land replacement for the Muskva, potentially being seized by Ukrainian high command or at least targeted by Ukrainian high command. I think that's going to be very significant over the over the coming days um, and the implications of that. But I just wanted to mention again a story that I alluded to last week um, that 
I think more more research is is ongoing on this area. But I've, I'm very interested in it because I think it's not received the perhaps news coverage that it that it deserves because of the challenges of reporting on it. Um, which is uh, around these deportations. And we heard over the weekend uh, from Interfax, which is a Russian state-controlled news agency, citing the Russian military, that more than 1.9 million Ukrainians have been forcibly deported to Russia since the start of the invasion, um, with over of them being 300,000 children. And I mean, these are just staggering numbers. I spoke last week about why, of course, they might be wanting to do this. Um, it's, you know, uh, attempts effectively to um, uh, you've, you've got control of the minds of the next generations of, of, of Ukrainians in the Donbass regions, potentially. Also, the power in which you have over uh, people who, who could potentially threaten the regime. But I mean, these numbers are almost... I mean, just the staggering scope of this and the, the fact that they may even be going to camps set up in Russia. I mean, it, it, it almost when one reads about this sounds like something, well, certainly from the Soviet Union, but maybe even sort of Stalinist in this attempt to seize people from pl certain places and effectively send them to um, places in Russia where it's very hard to for them to communicate and have no chance of or, of of escape and uh, you know effectively like the old gulag archipelago. So I, I as I say this is something I'm very interested in and I'm planning to, to to do some more research into because I think it's a story that that is underappreciated. And I just wanted to mention it because we've actually heard some verified statistics from the Russian state itself and and they, as I say they make very concerning reading. So that's that's my final thought for today. Thank you, Francis and James. Would you would you uh, like to give your your final word? Yeah, sure. Um, Francis, I wrote a story about this from Narva uh, about a month ago. So uh, uh, we, we've we've covered a bit of it. N not that that stat from the Interfax is is new, but definitely interesting. Um, and 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 this sort of my research up in Udalsk, um in northwest Kazakhstan. Uh, also showed, reminded me rather that this um, this sort of flow of people is, is two way. Uralsk had sucked in or become a home to, uh, a, a, you know, many many Russians fleeing, anti war Russians fleeing Russia as well and setting up home in in, in Uralsk. And, and I had an opportunity to speak to them, so I'm going to try and write about that somewhere. Uh, as far as the bigger picture is concerned, I, I think the the main story is a slow grinding uh, Russian machine, may, you know, making its way through Donbass, um, and how quickly it can wrap up its its victory there, um, which is looking likely, um, and 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 more on Putin and whether he he lashes out again at, at former Soviet states who who may not be doing what he wants them to do all the time. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. 
Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Sophie Coe.